Welcome back to Pandemic Pass. My name is Casey Siddons, and I am again your host for this side pod series to the Ed's Not Dead Media Group. This is episode seven called Ed Policy and COVID. In fact, it is the penultimate episode, which I just learned a new word this past week. It is the second to last episode of our Pandemic Pass series as it is currently planned. We have a huge guest coming on, a nationally recognized guest coming on next week. And uh, I I hope that uh, you enjoy this series. If you happen to miss episodes one through six, please make sure that you uh, subscribe and download to Ed's Not Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And again, don't worry, Ed's Not Dead is, is still here. It's alive and well. In fact, we just had an episode drop on March 15th with journalist Dan Reed as our guest. And we talked housing policy equaling education policy. We had a, a great discussion on, uh, on the docket throughout the night. Uh, just look for the green Ed's Not Dead logo and you will, uh, you'll know that a new episode with the whole crew is up. Uh, anyway, um, for today's episode, something that is very understated and misunderstood in the realm of really politics and education is the role of boards of education. Uh, my friends who listen to the West Wing Weekly podcast will appreciate my correct usage of whatever it means to pluralize a position like that, like uh, attorneys general or, uh, in this case, boards of education. But uh, alas, uh, elections do matter, and elections certainly have consequences, and elections for boards of education are no different. Uh, who we elect means the policies and procedures of, of an entire school system, no matter how big or small, are on the table for discussion and on the table for updates or, or really uh, revisions. Um, changes to curriculum, changes to how school operates, uh, school systems operate, is really at the feet of our members of our boards of education. And um, I, I, for this next episode, this particular episode of Pandemic Pass, I sit down with Lynn Harris, who is a relatively newly elected board of education member in the 14th largest school district in the nation, Montgomery County Public Schools, which is right outside the D.C. metro area. Uh, Lynn is, was actually on the Ed's Not Dead pod uh, about a year ago, and uh, she's actually a registered nurse and educator who um, she actually had to resign from her educator position because it'd be a conflict of interest. She now serves in the at-large seat on the Board of Education in Montgomery County, Maryland, a county with over a million residents. And Lynn was, as I said, most recently a teacher at, of the healthcare professions at uh, Thomas Edison High School of Technology, which she will talk about in our interview. It's one of the two schools that focus on career readiness programs solely, um, you know, the technical education uh, curriculum that we, we've known for many years. Um, prior to being a teacher, Lynn served as the president of the Montgomery County Council of PTAs, and she's just an all-around um, really great person, but just knows so much. Just like my when I had that uh, interview with Rick Wormley, I consider Lynn a polymath, someone who just knows a lot about a lot of different things and, and, and has a lot of quivers, uh, if, it, if you will, uh, in terms of the things that she knows and the, and the information that she could pull from. Uh, during our discussion, we talk about really the role of boards of education in such a crisis that we now find ourselves. Um, why it's so important to pay attention to what boards of education are saying, what they're doing and deciding during this particular COVID-19 pandemic. It, it's kind of easy to get lost in the sauce. You know, it's all, uh, meetings are happening all online. 
Um, we also talk about what she thinks Boards of Ed should be doing once we are back face-to-face um, to repair the damage done to our school system, um, our public school system. And I also, you know, to be to be sure, I also slipped in a question about vaccines for teachers because I think, you know, personally, all teachers should be required to be vaccinated before going back as well as students. Um, but that's just a sidebar opinion. Uh, anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Lynn is a dedicated teacher and, and public servant, and I think you're really going to take away a lot from our conversation that will add to your appreciation of the role of boards of education in our society. And uh, we will see you on the flip side. Real quick, before I let you go into the interview, um, just a heads up, I recorded this in the mountains of West Virginia on a uh, pretty low-rent Wi-Fi. And uh, there are some times where my questions get a little choppy. So uh, I apologize in advance for the lack of audio quality, but uh, it's a great interview regardless, and I hope you enjoy. All right. Lynn Harris, thank you so much for coming back on uh, the, the Ed's Not Dead team podcast, I, sh- I should say. Uh, I, I don't know if folks know this, but you were one of the first interviews of the, the COVID era uh, on Ed's Not Dead. Did you, did you, did you think about that? Yeah, I, I tell you what, it was a lot. Being the pod was, it's been a dream for a while. I'll just say. And it was, it was a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun talking to people who kind of think outside the box and also think deeply about Ed writ large, you know, all the different issues that we are uh, looking at when it comes to public education. So it was fun. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you've, you were, uh, you're, you're coming back on the pod. You're, you are now an official at the time you were running for board, now you are in the seat. You are you are in power of, of being a board of education member. So, uh, you know, as as member of one of the largest school systems in the country, the, the, the top subject on your mind is the logistics of bringing back kids and teachers to schools. And it's certainly no small feat. So how do you see your role in this process? And what should our fellow citizens know about what the board, you know, boards of education at large are doing to support the return? Well, I think um, I view the role of the board as bringing a lot of common sense to the equation and looking at the issues of reopening, you know, very comprehensively. We can't just look at this thing or that school or this course We have to be looking really, really globally at um, the issue of reopening, doing it, it, I think, with a lot of pragmatism. And I think because and I'm sure it's because of my, you know, I was a teacher in the system. I um, have public health expertise. I'm a nurse. I look at this and I have all along looked at this um, from a place of we're going through a pandemic how do we make school work? Let's do it. We can do it. Our job's to educate. Let's let's figure it out and move forward and move ahead and get kids back in schools as soon as we as soon as we can. And I guess part of that too is my mass my my graduate work in public health, not exclusively, but a lot of it was on community resilience, disaster planning, disaster response, 
So I look at things like this is not a time to just hunker down in fear and say, oh, we can't ever do X, Y, or Z and less and less and less. But it's it's a time to kind of stand up and learn how capable and resilient you can be and to really take make sure that you are keeping your eyes really firmly fixed on the evolving and emerging science and looking around. And, and this is one thing that I, I really feel strongly the Board of Education needs to do because we're so far behind on the on the on the reopening question. When you look globally and you look around the country, um, there's a lot we can learn from all the thousands of other school systems who have already plowed this road. And have already walked this walk and learning from them about what did work, what didn't work. You know, in retrospect, we wish we had um, that kind of thing. And so making sure that MCPS doesn't think they have to build the plane because we just have to fly it because everybody else is right. So um, I think that because my as my role as the board is really to push the system to be looking very globally at the issues around reopening to make sure we're keeping our eyes on the the best science out there and also consulting with and, and, and looking through and reviewing the experiences of all of those systems that have already done this to see what we can learn, because we certainly don't want to make, certainly don't want to make mistakes others have already made and fixed. We really want to take advantage of all the, the trials and errors and ups and downs that other systems have already gone through. And that, I think, is kind of my role at, at the board. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I think uh, I have a friend in Saskatoon in Canada and another friend in Pennsylvania. Both, you know, he, my friend in Pennsylvania works in a rural district. And my friend in uh, Canada, we talk often about, um, you know, they've been back at school in some capacity uh, for several months. You know, so it, obviously very rural, different, mm-hmm. totally different atmosphere than yep. being in a, a very... urban area, but there are best practices and things that we can glean, don't you think? I do. And I think, um, you know, I do. And I think, you know, part of the, the, and part of it is, you know, you build trust with your community by just sharing the journey because nobody has all the answers Mm -hmm. to everything. And, and you, you, you build trust by letting people know these are the things that we're looking at. These are the things that are it working. These are our advantages. These are our challenges. Mm-hmm. And this is what we're, how we're looking at pulling all that together to do the best that we can to serve students well. And I, I, one of my concerns has been that it, as compared to some of the other systems I've studied, and I have looked around at lots of systems that have been open, and I've actually taken advantage of family, <laughs> friendships, acquaintances, and even cold calling to talk to people in some of the school systems, teachers, administrators, um, students, families to get just the, kind of their on the ground experience of, of being open during the pandemic. And I think that we have not done a great job when it comes to sharing information all along the way. I think once mm-hmm. MCPS has kind of fallen victim to this, we can't, th- this, this sense that if we share information and it turns out we need to uh, amend our approach. We need to change something about what we share. Then we're just going to get attacked and and everybody, you know, it's going to be, you know, but and I've been pushing back to say, look, the perfect is the enemy of the good here. And yeah. everybody I think understands we're going through a time of crisis. And there are some things that we can share that are absolutely not going to change. You know, if we were going back in a building, uh, you know, masks, not negotiable, you know, right. the 
hygiene expectations, the frequent cleaning of high touch surfaces, the social distancing, you know, there are certain things that we can share and should share. And also, you know, we should be much more clear about the expectations about being in the school. And we should be, and one of the things I've really admired about a lot of the school systems that have opened is that their, um, their messaging is crystal clear about what, what circumstances or situations could lead to us um, pivoting back to virtual instruction, sure. either in a single school or as a system. This is what would cause that decision to, to, to be made. And this is what and how you'll hear about that. And this is what that will look like. And they've been really, really good about that. And that's one piece of messaging that MCPS is just that we haven't done. And I think right. that kind of messaging is, is really, really important. And I think people appreciate, even if there is a pivot, the the transparency, you know, the the fact that the communication transparency, if you have to renege on something, yeah. uh, having the information is important. I, I, I know this wasn't on my, my list of questions I emailed you, but as you were mentioning about going back to school, I, I wonder with your law background and your and your your just your general understanding of the world in which we live. Uh, private organizations are requiring staff to be vaccinated before returning. What, what are the, what kind of conversations are systems having? What kind of conversations have you had with uh, folks about this, this, you know, tricky legal issue of, of vaccinating staff before going back? Yeah, it's interesting you say that we, we, you know, been having these conversations and, um, you know, doing some consultations and also some reviewing of what other companies are doing. And um, I think mostly as a lawyer, I look at this issue and I do think it is tricky to absolutely require vaccination. Um, I, I am a public health person to my core. I am I am a huge prevention person. I, I am a wholehearted believer in vaccines. Um, but even, you know, for students in schools, and even when yeah. we're going, you know, if you look around at um, a couple of years ago, there were um, colleges around the country that were having measles outbreaks. Yes. Um, because there were positive students coming in, anti-vaxxers who weren't vaccinated. And, you know, the schools, I think the colleges did a pretty good job of really jumping on that bandwagon. And one of the first things you do is you vaccinate. But even in those circumstances, they weren't requiring vaccination. There were repercussions for people who would not be vaccinated. And they were, you know, required to isolate and that sort of thing. Um, because it measles, measles is one of just wickedly transmissible diseases. For those public health people that might be listening, I mean, I think not of measles is like 30, which is outrageous. Um, and then, you know, the R not of something like the flu is. 1.5 or 2 and wow. like it looks like COVID is kind of about the same I haven't seen the R0 data on some of the variants but it's still far less transmissible than measles and it's still you know you make it you right. encourage it you make it widely available you provide it for free but you can't make people as a and I really do think sure. a big problem with trying to make it a condition of employment okay yeah that makes sense I, I just, you know, I ask, I'm sure it's on the minds of everybody that are, are trying to go back. You know, it's hard enough to get vaccines as it is, but, um, you know, we have to move forward with, with schools opening at some point. So, um, yeah. so my, my next, my next question is around, 
our, you know, the most important asset that we have in our, our schools, which is our children. And prior to the pandemic, as you are so well aware, the achievement and opportunity gaps were as wide as they have ever been for, for yeah. students of color. We are now seeing uh, the initial data is, is troubling for the gap um, of our most vulnerable population, students of color, our students who are receiving special ed services, our English language learners. What do you believe school systems should prioritize with regard to these gaps once we get back to schools uh, face-to-face and in some sense of normal times? I think the first thing that we need to do is be incredibly individualized in meeting with those students and their families and doing a very no harm, no foul sort of assessment of where they are in their you know, student with a big, with an IEP and maybe not a student that's really not on a graduation track, but maybe a student that's in the system, you know, through their 21st year with kind of a life skills goal at the end, but really looking very clearly at in the, in the overall context of the progress we would want to see on, on in the different areas of work, where are they? Right. Not making any assumptions, not assuming, but, but just having that really individualized um, opportunity to assess and then have a really respectful conversation um, with the students and their families about next steps. Um, because I think we need to, it, it's it's going to be tricky, Casey, because I think we're going to be coming back with a lot of people that have been really traumatized. Yeah. And and we are like, like legit, like legit trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it could be from the isolation. It could be um, far worse. I mean, we know that just in general, we have a, a public health ec- ep- epidemic of ACEs of adverse childhood experiences in this country. That's been ongoing for years. And, you yeah. know, on average, you look at a classroom of students and one in eight or nine has experienced some form of abuse or neglect. And mm-hmm. that number is going to be much higher after this year of isolation, economic stress, um, all kinds of stress. And so and we are not a school system that has fully embraced trauma-informed practices throughout um, every single school. So we aren't really prepared yet to deal with the trauma. Right. So that has got to be part of that conversation, too, is. Not only where 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 are we in your educational trajectory, but what are you ready for, as far as moving right. back into right. your educational plan, and not having a cookie cutter. And I, th- you know, we, yeah, and I, I, that's a really great point. I think we have the time and the space now to really think about what that's going to look like, and that leads me to my next question. We're, we're, we're you know, systems are receiving billions of dollars across mm-hmm. the nation. What do you think that we should be? what are like the top things that we should be reimagining once things get back to normal with this increase in funding? I think everybody is acknowledging that for most students, the virtual instruction is not ideal by any stretch, but for some students it's working really well. And so I think there, I I think we'll see us coming out um, needing to develop sort of a virtual only learning Academy for Mm -hmm. our students who thrive with that virtual model and that level of independence. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're seeing that students thrive on it for a variety of reasons. But regardless, it's it, we now see, first of you know, there were all kinds of excuses for why we couldn't develop that kind of a program before, but now we've had to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing is, is developing a really rich, robust, high quality sort of virtual academy for the students who need it. And I think 
part of that, a subset of that will be um, using that as a way to make certain opportunities more equitably available to every single student in the county sure. while we figure out a way to better geographically distribute across the county are really great opportunities that are now far too isolated, like the ecology magnet at Poolsville, which is only in Poolsville. It's yep. great. It's one of the reasons yep. Poolsville is the number one ranked high school in the state of Maryland. But if you know, you got to yeah. get to Poolsville, and a lot of people can't do that. So we that's one of the things we need to franchise that. Um, and so um, looking at and you know opportunities like CAP and IB magnets and math science academies and some of the really great arts programs like VAPA at Einstein and some of the really great performing arts programs at mm-hmm. and that some of the um, the um, language immersion opportunities. So looking at ways that maybe we can make those um, available to more students with the the you know virtual uh, you know the students aren't at a school that offers that opportunity and but but you know finding a way that that using our enhanced capability to use virtual instruction that they just where they live or their assigned school isn't a delimiter to the opportunities they can take advantage. Right. Part of that too, and you know this because you're, you know, you're at a high school and you're, you know, leading some of the um, academies and part of that work. And I'm, and, and I'm probably really attuned to the, the, the tricky side of this, having taught at Edison. Because yeah. at Edison, I had students from every high school in the county. And, the and fact for that, those listening, Edison is, uh, Edison is a, can you tell our listeners what Edison is for those who aren't familiar? Yeah, I was at Edison High School of Technology, which um, in Montgomery County, we have not had the model of having a CTE-focused high school, but mm-hmm. we, we have used for years, and now we've expanded to a second location in the county um, of half day a half-day model for students who wanted to take part in our construction sciences, our automotive academies, cosmetology, academy of health professions, um, restaurant management, uh, law enforcement mm-hmm. and leadership. Uh, cybersecurity, those kinds of programs have been, a, there's a half day model and students spend half their day at their home high school where they're taking their, you know, their math, their English, their other graduation credit requirements. And then they spend a half day at Edison. And depending on the program, that, that, that arrangement lasts one, two, or even three years. And so that's been the model that we've used. And so since I taught in the Academy of Health Professions, had students from all different high schools um, the fact that every high school had its own scheduling, its own blog, yeah, its own testing, you know, testing, scheduling just kicked our butts, especially in a program like mine, which once we get into the second semester is very um, um, uh, external clinically based. So our students were basically out in the clinical setting the entire second semester and but we with with mandatory hours requirements um, that were you know from the board of nursing, and so all of these different schedules just kicked our butt. We were trying to make sure every single one of our students crossed the finish line with the required number of clinical hours. So you know, do a virtual academy opportunity. We're going to have to commonize those twenty five high school schedules. Mm-hmm. And it's to the point where every single high school has two, one or two periods a day in which students are taking advantage of a virtual learning opportunity to take a course or be part of an opportunity that's not offered in their home school. Mm-hmm. Do it because you're going to have to 
you like kind of like the learning pod model that we see up, you know, we have the equity and the for-profit learning hubs operating, I think in 70 plus of our elementary schools right now in which you have students and they're cohorted and they're supervised, you know, when they come in and they log on for their, mm-hmm. in their school, whatever grade they're in, whatever school they attend. And then the, the folks kind of circulate and make sure they're, you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing, but also helping to troubleshoot a tech issue or something like that. And so it would have to be supervised. So if you've got groups of students in high schools that are taking part of a virtual a virtual academy so that they can take a class that's not offered at their school, there it's going to have to be in a common time and place so that you've got staff that are that can be there and monitor that learning opportunity. So you might right. have 25 kids in a space and they're taking 10 different classes. And so they're all logging in, but you still you have to monitor that. So to do that well, you're going to have to have a common a common slot in the schedule that right. those classes happen. In. And so that, and you know, yeah. you know how that can be. And you know, <laughs> and if, are we a system or are we two hundred eight victims? But I mean, that's the kind of thing that to me that's just common sense. It's not that hard. It right. really isn't that hard. Um, especially when we're looking at closing the gap, opportunity and achievement. And now we've learned a way we can start, we can certainly make more opportunities more widely available. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, I, I want to end, uh, end our, our time with, with, you know, we talk a lot about, you hear a lot about all the negativity that surrounds school closures and distance learning. It's certainly a challenging time. And there, there has been some, you know, pretty negative points of our, of our time, but, but let's, let's end on a positive. What kind of, what kind of silver linings have you experienced or seen during these times for our, our teachers and students? You know, one of the things that I really appreciate is the wisdom of our communities that have identified problems and just come up with really just, we are going to solve this problem. We're going to work together and, and have just gotten it done and support whatever that meant you know, supporting, mm-hmm. you know, families who are COVID affected, uh, really in economic crisis, housing insecure, food insecure, just doing that kind of thing. And also, you know, the, those among us who have really pushed the school system to to do things differently this year and let go yeah. of some things. I think you saw in high school teacher, um, you know, it was the advocates that came forward to yeah. say students need academic relief. And MCCPTA and their curriculum committee that came forward with just a rock solid set of, of very core common sense solutions to help students deal with this time of, you know, the academic stress that they were under. Mm-hmm. It took some pushing, but the school system adopted every single one of those recommendations. Now the challenges to wow. make those are widely known and every student who that information can get that information and has the support in their school to take if they need to lighten the load. And then that, that gets us to um, that kind of creative problem solving throughout the communities and getting folks to start thinking about learning recovery. And you were talking about it earlier. So what is our summer going to look like? Mm. And um, how are we really doing the math around, you know, with academic, you know, providing these opportunities for students to make their own choices, the choices of work for them about their academic load this year and having that no harm, no foul, get that dang W off your trans mm-hmm. and say, it, look, it's a required class. We're going to work with you and make sure that you're going to get that. Do not worry. But so what does that mean for the classes we need to be offering over the summer? I think right. we have to ramp up and have kind of a more robust summer school option 
And I was a little disappointed to see lack of support for there's a bill in the General Assembly to make summer school kind of make it free. And that is one of the things we're using with that COVID money is if we're talking about recovery, we need a really robust summer school options. I hope we can do it in person. Personally, I plan to volunteer because they can't hire me because I I work. (laughs) But I plan to volunteer to teach health in summer school. I'm qualified. I, you know, I think there's an argument to be made to, to extend our school year all year, you know, keep the same, maybe the same amount of days, but extend the amount of time that we have. We're not, we don't need that three month gap. Yeah, but not now. That's a conversation for another day. <laughs> yeah, but such a good idea. But that kind of creative thinking and looking at how we're going right. to relief dollars, but lose them in ways that are really going to serve the most students well. And, you know, and on that, on that note, I, I also, I've also, one of the, things that I've seen as you talk about it is the, the empathy that's coming from all sorts of people and especially our teachers who are, I, I don't think I'd ever, I had ever see the day where there was a, a whole ton of teachers who are on board with the more empathetic grading practices and policies that we've been pushing for a more equitable classroom for, you know, 20 years. Um, this has certainly pushed that. And it's been nice to see the amount of empathy that's coming from our teachers. Not everybody, but, you know, a, a, right. a large majority. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting, too, because um, part of our work when we come back is going to be assessing every student, every high flyers to students who are struggling um, for content mastery. Because um, yeah. you know, it's just going to yeah. keep stress on stress. If we just assume students who made it through this year and, and passed their classes with whatever grades are just really ready to march on to the next thing. I don't think we can really assume that. Yeah. Mm, that's a good point. Well, that is a conversation for another pod for another day. But uh, thank you so much, Lynn. Lynn Harris, thank you so much for coming on the pod, the pandemic pass, uh, new, you know, new event. But uh, it's been great having you on, and and this is one of many conversations that I've had. So, thank you for making me smarter and and making our listeners smarter. Thanks, Casey. This is fun. Let's do it again. Absolutely. (laughs) We'll chat again soon. Thank you for joining us on Pandemic Pass. Pandemic Pass is an Ed's Not Dead media production and was written and directed by me, Casey Siddons. Music was written and performed by Peter Crable. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us. Find out more on our website at edsnotdead.com.